0: Hi everyone, we've set up this Being an Engineer podcast as an industry knowledge repository, if you will. We hope it'll be a tool where engineers can learn about and connect with other companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities.
1: So make some connections and enjoy the show. Right now, we're in a re- I think it's a real tipping point in education for engineering especially because we have all of these great tools that people are half-using. And if we can kind of push some of these things and lean into what Gen Z really wants and and the modalities that they like, I think we can really boost the amount of learning that, that goes on.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. We're speaking today with D- Assistant Dean Michael De Gregorio, who holds bachelor's and master's degrees as well as a PhD in mechanical engineering. His background includes biomechanical research on the human hand, understanding injury modes due to IED explosions and automobile accidents, and currently serves as the Assistant Dean of Engineering at Grand Canyon University. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So what made you decide to become an engineer?
1: Man, um, so the origin story, I guess. um, This is going to date me a little bit, but when I was a kid, I really loved this TV show, MacGyver. Love MacGyver. um, Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, And I'm pretty sure that is the origin of why I wanted to be an engineer, right? So If anybody's listening and doesn't know, MacGyver is a guy who would get himself into these espionage situations and then get himself out by designing things Mm -hmm. with what he had at hand, right? Um, That, and I was listening to one of your earlier shows, and I, I had a lot of resonance with the answer that I think that you gave about why you became an engineer, where you were sitting at your dinner table and your dad's like, hey, how about engineering? Pretty much the same thing. My uh my guidance counselor in high school is like, Hey, you're good at math and science. Why don't you try engineering? And uh I did and I, I really enjoyed it. And so awesome. that's kind yeah. of how it
0: went. Kindred spirit here. That's great. Yeah. Uh, I love that you brought up MacGyver. So for all of you listeners out there, if you don't know who MacGyver is, first of all, shame on you. And second of all, go out and find some old episodes of MacGyver. I think they're on, on uh Netflix, or maybe it's Hulu or something like that. I know I found them yeah. recently on one of those streaming apps. I'm pretty sure it's Netflix. I'm okay. pretty sure. Ph- phenomenal series. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you're you're working in academia now, but you did spend some time in industry before moving to Grand Canyon University. Um, one of the places that you worked was called BioRec, where you reconstructed automotive accidents and determined injury potential can you just walk us through that process? You know, what, what were some of the tools that you
1: used, and how were your results used? Who are your customers? That kind of thing. So accident reconstruction and injury analysis is a very uh, interesting field, right? Because you need to essentially figure out this puzzle in a reverse order, right? Like you have the outcome and you need to figure out how all the pieces made, made the puzzle, right? So it's interesting in that way um, without giving away too much of the special sauce of what BioRec does, because I'm sure that, you know, Joe Pellis would be really upset if every all of his competitors got that right. But what it really boils down to for, for accident reconstruction is first, you need to do research on the vehicle, right? And so you go to some of these guidebooks and you you piece through okay these are the pieces that the 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 accident report said were were broken you have insurance estimates and the reason that you're doing that is in the case that you can't actually look at the vehicles that were in an accident you need to be able to go out and find one that is comparable to what was in the accident so you have some frame of reference for how this vehicle was um was deformed right in the accident Um, The next thing you do is, and this gets into the tools, it's really at its base, just momentum, energy, and restitution calculations. So it's your university physics class, right? Or if you're a mechanical engineer, it's dynamics, right? And it's, you have a collision that has occurred and you want to determine how much energy caused that amount of damage. And so you know, if you have a high restitution collision, something that's close to one, right? Um, what that means is that the two things hit each other and bounced away, right, with minimal damage. Now it can't be one because there's sound energy and thermal energy that gets exchanged from that collision, but it's pretty high and they bounce apart, right? So those are things like low speed collisions, right? And higher speed collisions, you get restitutions that are close to zero, which essentially means that the thing never bounced back to its original shape. It just deformed. And the best example I can give you is if you watch a low speed or a high speed camera of somebody kicking a football or soccer ball, you'll see that the ball deforms, right? And then it springs back, right? And that springing back is the period of restitution. So you use those, you, you understand that from the accident scene, um, From the accident scene pictures that you have, you know that there's a certain amount of deformation on the car, right? You then work your calculations backwards to figure out how much energy it took to deform it that way, because that informs how much speed you had, right? Because you bring it back to kinetic energy at the end of the day. And once you have all of that, then you start diving into pre-existing injury research, Because there are a lot of research groups out there who focus specifically on determining what sorts of injuries are possible for what they call the delta V, or the change in velocity. It's kind of like the acceleration, except that we're not worried about it how long the period of time that change in velocity happened over. Um, You assume that the collision is fairly short in any case, right? And so you really quantify it with the change in the velocity. And so based on what your ranges of delta V are, you can make an assessment as to whether or not somebody could have hurt their neck or their arm or their legs in the way that they have.
0: So uh, once once you have that information, you're you're kind of tying it back to some kind of biomechanical index that that tells you, you know, this sort of impact can result in this degree of
1: injury, et cetera? Exactly. Yes got it okay and then um in terms of customers it's uh it's lawyers lawyers want you to do this work right um why because somebody's getting sued somewhere about something um and so it is a very litigious uh, business because you know it works within the legal system <laughs> that's super interesting i don't think i've ever
0: heard kind of the background of of um uh, the process, you know, of, of uh, uh, identifying injury potentials. Um, I, I I'm just going to ask, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Um,
1: can't think of the word anyway. Did you like it? Was that fun for you? For me? Not really. And I'll be honest. I don't think, I think at that time in my life, my kids were, were one and two and we had just moved back here from North Carolina. And, I I don't think I was giving the work all the attention that I could have because of where I was personally at the time. Um, It's interesting work. I I still look back on it and I I enjoyed it, but I do think that long-term, I don't think it would have been for me um, personally. Yeah, Um, The legalism of it and... Uh you don't get to choose right all the time if you get to be on plaintiff or defendant side. You just kind of get handed a case and you're like, yo, you got to go with it. <laughs> so interesting.
0: All right. Well, you're at Grand Canyon University now and you've held a few different roles there from program lead to to chair to now assistant dean <laughs> of engineering. What
1: what are your day-to-day activities like there? Okay. Uh so as program lead or chair uh, that was still a faculty position, right? And so the day-to-day for that would be teacher classes, interact with students, um, have your office hours, but then on top of those responsibilities, make program uh, decisions, help influence curriculum and, and things like that. With assistant dean, it's much more of a daily operations role. And so I like to think of it as I... I'm here to serve the faculty so that they can then serve the students. So I try to make sure that everybody has the things that they need so that they can do their job. Almost sounds like a, like a project manager role. It, in a sense, it, it is, right? Because I, I take care of scheduling um, with help from our program director as well, we kind of, we handle student side issues as well. And so really anything that guides the curriculum, anything that helps faculty do their job or anything that helps to get students through the program, uh, is, is where I kind of spend my day. Nice. And
0: what, what was it that made you, uh, pursue at least for now a career in
1: academia, as opposed to staying in industry? I, always felt that i would end up back in academia at some point i albeit i do think that this is a little bit sooner than uh i would have envisioned it when i got out of college right um my i i remember back in my undergrad every single one of my professors had a pe and they all did consulting in the summertime right like that was that was their cycle and I think that that really helped inform their teaching, right? Because now we're learning things and we have context in the real world. Hey, don't do it this way. Do it that way, because this is how your boss is going to ask you to do this. Right. Um, or, Hey, you know what? I know somebody told you that differential equations aren't important, right? But guess what? Differential equations are everywhere and you're not going to escape them. So you're going to need to figure that out. Right. Um, and so I always wanted to have that industry experience so that I could transfer some of that more hands-on and applicable knowledge to students, right? And and again, the ideal plan, I would have been a, a little bit older before coming back to academia, but I do think it was always something that I, I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are probably some people listening to this right
0: now who maybe are considering a, a similar route, right? Going into academia versus industry or maybe they're in industry now and they're interested in going into academia what what should they
1: consider before making that kind of decision so i will say i tell students this all the time this is one of the only jobs that if i don't show up to the classroom my clients all are really excited um <laughs> right so i i think that the pace is really the answer right um in industry everything moves Pretty quickly, but by comparison in the academic world to affect change, you need to be a little bit more patient and work at a little bit of a slower pace. Things tend to move a little bit, I'd say glacially here, right? Um, It's, and, and I think that that's probably the biggest difference that I've noticed. I think, especially with the faculty that we have, we have so many people who have a lot of really great industry background and are just they've they you know have some people who had 30 20 to 30 years in industry and then came back to teach and they are you know they are a wealth of information and the students love them and they have all of this this knowledge to give right and it's but they get frustrated because you can't just make a change on a dime and 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 you know be going in a different direction there's all these processes and these these red tapes that you need to kind of go through to get to really affect change in, a, in an appropriate way. Here,
0: yeah, you mentioned the the glacial pace, and that's not specific to to the university where you are. That's I think that's probably true, kind of across the board in, in most universities. Do you think that's
1: appropriate? Is that how it should be, or is that uh, 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 an opportunity for change? I think it's an opportunity for change, and I think that if you look at how universities are starting to do things, they are starting to try to treat it more like a business. And I think it's important to understand the future of where higher education is going to go. And I think that COVID kind of showed us that a little bit, right? Um, Being able to do certain things remotely, for instance, is a huge asset, right? If you can do some teaching remotely or if you can effectively teach a class via Zoom or online that increases the amount of reach that you have right increases the amount of people who can can take that class maybe they wouldn't have been able to before um but yeah i think overall it's a really big opportunity for people in higher education to kind of sit down and say just because a thing is worked for years. Are we doing this because it's tradition or are we doing this because it's the best way to do it, right? And those are a lot of the conversations that we are having here right now. You know, it's, you know, adapt or, uh, you know, they say publish or perish, but really it's it's the same in industry. It's adapt or or perish, right? You need to be the, you need to be moving in the right direction. Otherwise you're going to be left behind.
0: Yeah. That's a really powerful way to think about it. How about the just the the educational aspect of what you do has that changed much since since you were a student or is the way in which engineering is taught uh, do
1: you feel like that's changed much over time I I think we are doing a really good job of doing it differently here at GCU I can't speak for other institutions although um I do think you know just full disclosure, we only do undergraduate engineering for the time being, right? And so we don't have any master's or PhD students um, because I do think you get that's in those grad programs is where you get that more hands-on, that more, um, I would say applications-based, but you get more of this, um, this community, right? Whereas at a larger university, it's sometimes easier to get lost in the crowd in these big lecture sections, right? Um, what we're doing is we have a common first two year core, right? That all engineering majors take regardless. And so for the first two years, you don't have to decide what your major is. You just can be an engineer and figure out what you like, right? And then after those two years, you start to specialize and in your junior and senior year, your class sizes get smaller. And so we, we have larger sections for the first two years, right? 72 ish at max and then you end up in these classes that are lecture and lab combined right and so you meet for five hours a week but the cadence of it is the professor will lecture for you know 10-15 minutes on a topic and then you're off you're you're either doing problems you're doing an activity that uh, highlights what you're what that lecture portion was about and then you're back into the lecture and so it's more multimodal right back when i went to undergrad it was that it was you know what what, 50 minutes of lecture and then you got a lab once a week if you were if you were at a lab class otherwise you just sat there and took notes feverishly right and then hope that you got everything down that you needed um a lot of our faculty are you know and I'm sure there's other people posting slides, right? Uh, when I was teaching, I used to record all my lectures on YouTube, and I have YouTube playlists that the students can go back and watch. Um, you know we have people that run Discord servers so that they're more readily available for students. It's right now, we're in a re- I think it's a real tipping point in education, for engineering, especially, because we have all of these great tools that people are half using. Right, and if we can kind of push some of these things and lean into what gen z really wants and and the modalities that they like i think we can really boost the amount of learning that that goes on
0: that's a cool way to think about it we've got these technologies that are being half used and and what can we accomplish if they're fully used yeah well Let's say that I'm in high school right now. I'm, a, I am ai do not know, a, a sophomore, maybe a junior, something like that. And I'm thinking about the future, right? Which we already know is 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 false because uh, kids in high school don't think about the future. At least I didn't <laughs> when I was in high school. <laughs> That's probably changed. I think kids are like way more advanced now than, than I was back then. <laughs> but what what should I be thinking about if I want to go to a university and major in engineering? What What are
1: some ways that I should be preparing myself? I like, I think it's, it's funny because I, I do tell, I taught a freshman, our freshman experience class one time and, uh, I told them right off the bat, I don't know who your teacher was that told you you never need algebra ever again, but that person was a liar and they lied right to your face. (laughs) Um, and I, I'd say focus on the fundamentals. My, my biggest advice that I give anybody is, um, you know, hard work always trumps talent, when talent doesn't work hard, right? And so, you know, you look at if you look at anybody, if you are willing to put in the hours, then you can accomplish whatever it is that you need to accomplish. Uh engineering is a thing that anybody who has gone through it will tell you is not an easy major to pick, right? It's very time intensive. Um but keys for success, I think are the same as a lot of other things, right. You need to put in the time you need to manage your time. Right. And so really think about what are the things that are important to you and how do you prioritize, you know, your life so that you can, you know, not only go to work, but also do your schoolwork and pass your classes. Right. Um, And have a social life because I'm not going to tell you to, you know, go and sit and not because that's part of the college experience too—is making friends and you know self-care and and all those things that are really important. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: I love that you brought up. Um, uh, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it now, but we have a plaque here at Pipeline that says "Perseverance beats brilliance," and you you, you know said basically the same thing in, in some different words. But I think that's true ninety nine times out of a hundred that the person who's tenacious and just keeps beating their head against the problem is the one that figures it out more often than the the brilliant person who maybe, you know, tries for a little
1: while, but then I'm tired of this problem. I'll move on to something else. Well, and I I think part of it too is, you know, if you go, an elegant solution is great, but think back to the first time you ever wrote a computer code, that, that thing looked nice. Oh, that's a, that's a scary (laughs)
0: thought. Um, Not just because my coding was, was poor back then and good. Now it's non-existent now and it was horrible back then. So. That's a scary thought for me. Taking me down a dark hole here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But with practice, right? You you start. You look at those. You look at those things that you used to do, and even in your youth, and you're like, I can't believe I was so naive and I did that, right? Like, it's the 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 learning. I think the other piece of advice I have, right, is that often learning is painful, right? Growth is painful. There is a reason why your teeth don't all just pop into your head immediately. It's because that has to hurt when they're breaking through your gums, right? Like, and there's a reason why it happens when you're a baby, because then you can't remember it. Right? <laughs> um, the, the, the same holds with, with learning though, right? With growth, anytime you grow you're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable when you're pushing your envelope, when you're pushing your mind, right? It's, it's not about being in your comfort zone. It's about being out of your comfort zone and trying something, so really you know don't expect to be a hundred percent the first time you try anything right i i use this example a lot is um when i was working at wake forest i used to sit down the hall from where the med students uh would hang out because my office was right there and once a year the first year med students would, would sit there in the fall semester and a bunch of them would be crying right and I found out it's because it was the first exam that they took was that day, and many of them are such high achievers that they never got lower than an A, and they thought that their life was over because they got a B, Hmm. right? And I am here to tell you that that is not the case. I've gotten plenty of Bs, I've gotten plenty of Cs, and we we really
0: are kindred spirits. So I'm, I'm really, (laughs) I'm vibing here. Yeah. (laughs)
1: you can you can like again if you want something bad enough you can make it happen right and you just have to be persistent and and y'all work hard that's that's really the the skills that you need
0: (laughs) that's totally how it was for me um in in school and also in my career definitely in school i was not your naturally gifted academic it was hard for me and i i did not get all A's for sure there were there were definitely some c's in there um but you just keep pushing right you just keep doing as the best you can and and uh you make it through and and honestly that's maybe one of the greatest uh lessons i learned in school was was not just the technical aspects but how to keep pushing myself and just get through something really hard right do hard things
1: yeah absolutely
0: All right. Well, let me take a short break here and share with the listeners that Teampipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. Today, we're speaking with Assistant Dean Michael De Gregorio. And uh, Michael, is, is there anything that you wish students applying to the College of Engineering would understand before
1: they decide to, to go the path of engineering? Man, um, be, be curious, ask questions, right? Um, I think there's a common trend among all engineers that whether you're electrical, mechanical, biomedical, whatever you happen to be, that you're you're legitimately interested in how something works right and whether you so so i guess would be the the advice would be right stay stay curious uh, always ask those questions um i mean understand that it's not meant to be easy so don't get discouraged if you know you're not you're not uh performing to where you want to be but also understand that you can get there if you, you know, seek help. People are there to help you, right? And so, use use your resources. Use your tutoring centers. Use uh, your professors, upperclassmen, whoever whoever you need to. But seek help if you need it. Totally. And on that subject, what do you think are some of the most
0: um, difficult challenges that engineering students are facing these days?
1: Man. That's that's a good question. I would say that overall I, I don't want to bring it back to a class, right? But I, I think a lot of students struggle with with transport, right? Fluid mechanics and heat transfer. <laughs> um that seems to be an area where people tend to struggle. They don't they don't see the point of it um fair. But I think the spirit of the question is a little bit broader than that, right? Um and so I would say that one of the bigger challenges is right now is is a lack of perseverance um, hey. that I've noticed. Some people just tend to, well, I did it wrong and give up, right? There's also the opposite of that, which is the over-tenacious, and, and that's not a bad thing, right, to be tenacious and to want to persevere, but it is a bad thing when you are so convinced that you are right oh, that yes. you do not, want to hear that you were wrong um (laughs) and i understand that and i've been in those shoes before but maybe i guess maybe where i'm at is maybe just some humility right um oh that's wonderful music to
0: my ears yeah (laughs) i i I have to share, share a quick story here i mentioned um a plaque that we have hanging on the wall right it says persistence beats brilliance well we have uh, who, how many? Nine, I think. Nine of these plaques that are up there. Uh, I call them pipelines tenets. Right, just some some principles that that we should live by here at pipeline. Another one of them um it uh, talks about the absolute certainty principle, and this is this is an Aaron original here. The absolute certainty principle. This is when you are so convinced that you're right that it it becomes to the exclusion of any other possibilities out there. And uh, I'll share a quick example to try and illustrate this further, because I think it's a really, really important point. You mentioned humility, right? That's a critical aspect of this. So we have a pool in our backyard, and we were starting to get some algae in this pool. And I was pulling my hair out because I could not get the algae under control. Uh, you know, I put the shock in, the chlorine, and and I just couldn't get it. And So I hired a company to come out and and take care of this algae. And so they come out and they they say, okay, we figured out the problem. Uh, you have too many phosphates in your pool. And they say, we'll we'll just do this phosphate remover treatment and that'll fix it. And I said, okay, that's great. Are you sure that's the problem? Is there, are there any other possibilities that, that could be causing this algae? And they said, no, we are absolutely certain that it's uh, phosphate levels are too high. And that's, that's it that's it and we're done, can't be anything else. I say, okay, fine, great, let's go ahead and do this. So they do the the phosphate remover treatment. Guess what? Several days later, the algae is still there, has not reduced at all. In fact, it probably even got a little bit worse. So I call them back and I say, hey, I know you were absolutely certain that the problem was phosphates, but we did this treatment and it has not helped at all. So what do we do now? And they kind of scratched their heads and they said, Oh, well, we'll send out a senior technician to take a look. And so someone else came out, and turns out there was a different problem where uh, it was like free chlorine levels had risen to a point where they just, the, the chlorine wasn't effective anymore. And they had to drain the entire pool. That ended up being the solution. But it illustrates the point that we, especially when we're experts in something, right? We become blind to other possibilities outside of what we are so convinced is is the right answer. Uh, so anyway, the absolute certainty principle. Are you falling victim to it? <laughs> there. I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> well, I have
1: a I have a colleague who um, she she will look at students and say, "Oh, really? That's what you think in all of your years of experience." <laughs> Uh, Okay, I I had a professor
0: who it it was a little bit different, but it was super funny. So I have to share this real quick. Inevitably, someone would raise their hand and say, Professor, I, I I have a dumb question. And the professor would say he he was waiting for this right because it happened every semester uh, inevitably some student raised their hand I have a dumb question professor and then they go on to ask the question well he'd interrupt them and say no 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 there are no dumb questions only dumb people now what's your what's your question <laughs> and the the whole class was I mean he was good natured about it he wasn't really trying to pick on anyone but it was a funny response all right well let's see let's keep going here um. Beyond just the technical aspects of uh, an education in engineering at university, what, what's one thing that if the students learn this lesson before graduation, this one thing, um, you'll feel like the the uh, uh, the
1: university has, has done their job when it comes to educating these students? Don't put your numbers in before you're ready to do your calculation. Ooh, tell me more about that. Um, so... I used to teach a uh, dynamic systems class, which is just essentially it's mathematical modeling, right? So here's a system. Give me the mathematical model for it because the follow-on to that is control systems, right? And so you have this nice plant model and now it's in the black box and then you put your input and your output in, right? Okay, great. But if you put your numbers in at the beginning and then I tell you, well, actually, no, Your spring mass damper, it turns out that I can't get that spring that you need, and I can only get this spring, so you need to redo the whole calculation. Now you have to start all the way at the beginning, (laughs) right, because you put the numbers in first. But really, um, I would say understanding that there are typically multiple correct answers to things, right, and just think about think about a problem you know you could come up with multiple solutions and the thing that could make one more correct than another is maybe a factor that the user wants like your customer asks you for something specifically right or maybe it's some human factor that you didn't even consider in the beginning and then you did some testing right um be comfortable with the fact that nothing There's no one. I know that textbooks tell you there's one correct answer, but there's often more than one correct answer. And so being able, I guess, to solve open-ended problems that require you to think a little bit and make an engineering judgment about a quantity or, or a, a reaction to something.
0: Those are two great answers. Um, I really like how tactical that first one was because that that like gets into some nitty gritty details about problem solving uh with equations anyway and I was totally that guy freshman year of college putting in the numbers way too early and I had a friend who was brilliant and he would he would tutor me sometimes and every time I did that he'd slap my hands and say stop it, stop doing that not we're not ready for that step. <laughs> I eventually did learn that lesson all right um. How do you think industry and uh, universities are working uh, well, and in how can we improve the way that that we work together?
1: So I think it's it's a little bit different with how GCU interfaces with industry than a bigger school like uh, an ASU. Um, so ASU is a Tier One research institution, right? And so they're pulling in a lot of grants. They have some industry partnerships to do some R and D stuff, right? Whereas at GCU, we don't really have very much research. We are mainly, strictly speaking, a um, an, an educational or a, a teaching university, right? And so the way that we, and I'm pretty sure other universities do this as well, but our biggest means of interacting with industry is through our uh, industry advisory boards. And so whenever we make a curricular change or a programmatic change or we're proposing a new program or whatever it happens to be, we run it past a set of industry advisors first, and they're all local to the Phoenix area. Right. And, you know, we pick their brains and we meet with them twice a year. And I think that this is, this has been a great partnership for us because we have the ability to not only say, Hey, are we giving our students what they need to be successful? Like, do you want to, do you even want to hire our students right now? Like, like, what What is going to get our students into your workplace? That's the real question, right? At the end of the day, we, you know, it, anybody at a university level is really in workforce development, right? Regardless of what discipline you're teaching in or what college you're a part of. And what I need to know to be competitive is what skills do you as an industry representative need my students to have on day one? When they walk into that door, because if they don't have them, we need to make sure they have them. Right. That's that's the bottom line. And so that's those are the types of questions we ask. And I think that, you know, if I might toot my own horn a little bit, you know, I didn't build the program from the ground up. But I think that those who came before me did an excellent job of listening to that advice. And I think that our students do have a lot of skills that make them make their learning curve a little bit shallower when they, when they come in. Mm, and so, that's
0: wonderful. Awesome. I like to say that doing is better than learning about doing. And it, it, it sounds like uh, your team there is, has instituted a lot of doing, which is excellent. Well, what is, what's one of your proudest moments
1: as an educator? Man. Uh, well, I'll I'll say for me, in twenty, I guess last year it was twenty twenty two. I was nominated for an engineering unleashed, unleashed fellowship, um, and I won it. And so I got ten thousand dollars to do educational research. Um, essentially, uh, this foundation, the Keen Foundation, it's really the Kern Family Foundation, but Keen is the engineering branch of it. They fund these workshops throughout the year. And I went to this one for something called problem solving studio. And essentially what it is is it's it's a pedagogy for teaching students that is really helpful when you teach in the style or at least it fit well with my teaching style, which was that few minutes of lecture now do a thing. But it's how do we bring more open-ended problems into the classroom? And so for that dynamic systems class I told you about earlier. What I did was I brought in a bunch of card shufflers, like really cheapo electronic card shufflers from Amazon, right? They came with really nice cards. Everybody was really impressed. They like gold plated cards, but I was like, okay, well, you know, in the real world, no one's going to give you the circuit diagram for these motors and no one's going to, you know, give you a systems diagram. Here's a card shuffler. I need you guys to not only create the system diagram for this, but also write the, you know, system of equations that governs this system, right? Nice. That's and great. I let them get as crazy as this. These things have little tiny gear traits on them too, right? For the, for the card flipper. Right. And, and I, they're like, well, do we need to, I'm like, it's up to you. You can model the gear train if you want. And some of them who are clever realized, you know, all I have to do is measure the first and the last one. And it's. You know, that's, that's really all I need. But, you know, some people got really into it and really in-depth. Some of them were trying to model the, like, try to figure out what the actual impedance of the motor was, right? So that they could make their RL circuits really, like, nice-looking. It, it was great. And then I would have them take those, those system models, right? And put them into a program called um, Simscape, which is an add-on to Simulate. Which makes a visual model of it, and you can give it an input. And so I said, okay, now I want you to alter these parameters so that the output is the velocity of the motor, right? The angular velocity. And I just want you to play around with it and see how changing the different things affects the outcome, right? And so, and and just kind of tune it until you get something that looks reasonable to you, right? Because you you kind of want that nice steady state curve for that motor velocity right because that's how it works um but it was a really great i you know i surveyed them afterwards with the survey monkey and they were all like everybody really loved it right because it finally put into context to them you know okay this is why this might be useful and i'm not foolish enough to think that every class that you'll ever take you're going to use everything from right but again it goes back to if I could just teach you how to solve a problem. The rest of it is you'll be fine. Right. It's really at the end of the day, what you get paid for as an engineer is to look for new and interesting solutions to problems. That's, yep. that's
0: what it is. Yep. Yep. I tell people that engineers are professional problem solvers. So um, within that context of being an engineer what is one thing that that frustrates you, and also one thing one thing that brings you
1: some joy? Well, uh, answer the joy one first. Um, I really love solving problems, right? Like getting a solution to something just really is is the it's the drug, right? It's it's the reason you get that dopamine hit and you keep coming back for it. I I remember when I was younger, my cousin was like. You know that feeling you get when you solve a math problem, like yeah, he's like yeah, I'm oh like okay, <laughs> great man. <laughs> Sorry. Something that really frustrates me though is um, and I you know, man, that's that's a that's a tough one. I I try to brush them off as soon as I g- I get them, you know. Um, but I would say that from an engineering point of view, um, well, I'll bring this back to my first job, right? Right out of college, I was working for Picatinny Arsenal, which I was a civilian member of um, essentially uh, the DOD, right? And so we would do weapon design. And when you work for the government, there's really no design work that you actually do, which was not told to me when I signed up. Uh, I designed a lot of PowerPoints. Um, oh no (laughs) and so um that that gets really frustrating like the paperwork right the paperwork is super frustrating and and the administrative side of things which is funny because now i've put myself in this role where i basically just do all of the frustrating things right um uh
0: well on that note i think we'll we'll wrap things up here um Michael thank you so much for for spending some time with me today. Um how can people get in touch with you?
1: You can find me on LinkedIn for sure. Michael De Um should should be right up there. Uh I'm on Twitter too. I don't really do anything on there, but it exists drdgcu if you, that's something that people are interested in following. Um but yeah, LinkedIn and you know, the GCU website should should have all my, my vitals, so anybody can get in touch with me through those forms. Super. Michael, thank you so much. Well, thank you.
0: I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you like what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.